Hey guys, just a quick one before this episode starts. There's a little bit of an interference uh, a few times across the episode. I don't know if it was my Wi-Fi or Andrew's, but there'll be a couple of occasions where um, when he's answering questions, it'll sort of um, slow up, but it only lasts for two or three seconds. Um, and as it only happens about three or four occasions over the episode, um, I hope you enjoy. Have a good day. Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Now, my guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to do my best to give him one. You may know him from his most recent bodybuilding competition in which his other half, or perhaps his better half, managed to out-angle him. You might also perhaps know that he is the top three pro-natural male middleweight bodybuilder in the world. It is the one, the only... Dr. Andrew Chappelle. How are we doing, buddy? Hey, Vaughn. How's it going? Thank you very much. That angling by Steph, I mean, that's debatable, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at at least you're angling. Most people seem to be particularly from the back. (laughs) (laughs) At least you're angling. I stand beside her and she's just generally bigger than I am. Yeah, yes, yes. At least you've got Um, a If you don't know who we're talking about, we're obviously talking about uh, Steph Noble, my uh, my other half and the other half of Pro Prep Coaching, uh, who was on your show a few weeks back talking to you. Great episode, by the way. I'd encourage anyone to have a listen to it um, from the psychological angles of female female bodybuilding but yeah thank you for that nice introduction i thought i thought you'd appreciate that and yeah we had a we had great feedback from that episode um and i thought it was fitting to get the other half of pro prep coaching on but i think the listeners are are in for a treat today um but there's still some listeners out there they're wondering who's this doctor guy what does he do and 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 is he even a bodybuilder so what i want you to do if you can is can you just give us a a brief history of uh, not only your bodybuilding career to date, but also your your education. Um, just maybe perhaps a little bit about your research, because I'm going to quiz you on that next, um, so that the listeners know exactly what we're sort of tuned in for today. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's go down with that. Um, let's go with the education first, because um, that's that's probably easier to to summarise. Um, I finished high school, uh, two thousand and three. Fucking hell. <laughs> That's a long time ago. I didn't do particularly well in high school. I just wasn't um, particularly turned on to it. And I went and did a HNC and a HND. And at that point, I really, that's when my education really began. I started doing a HNC, HND in health and fitness at West Living College. Um, so I think it's this could be a good story for anyone who's particularly not interested in, in learning at school or maybe doesn't find things that... Um, they weren't particularly motivated, but I, I studied them. I was really interested in biology and the effects of um, exercise on the human body and nutrition. I went on and I studied a sport and exercise science degree. After that, I did that at Heriot Watt University, and I majored in the effects of creatine monohydrate on um, on cardiovascular disease and could it be used in chronic car- uh, failure patients. After that, I... Um, I took a year off. I went and worked for a sports supplement company in Scotland called Extreme Nutrition, looking at uh, and selling different sports supplements to, uh, to bodybuilders, traveling around all the uh, the bodybuilding shows around the UK, um, selling sports supplements and uh, talking to people about nutrition. So we did the Navi Universe, Navi UK, UKBFF shows, which was much, much bigger, I would say, at the time. We also did the natural bodybuilding scene as well, the, the BMBF ones. 
and just various other ones as um, as well. And we got to meet lots of cool and weird and wonderful, interesting people in the, the sports uh, supplement industry and in this um, bodybuilding and strongman world. After that, I realized that I was better at sports nutrition than I was at sports science. I went on and I did my master's in uh, human nutrition, and I did that at uh, Aberdeen University, way up here in uh, the Granite City. And then uh, from there, I majored in the effects of um, fish oil, so fatty acids, on uh, exercise performance, muscle soreness, oxidative stress, things like that. That was a really good degree. I, I got a really good sort of foundational um, understanding of public health nutrition and also in, the, in physiology. They're, they're great scientists up there in Aberdeen. I then went and I did a PhD in um, human nutrition and I specialised in the effects of dietary fibre, particularly from oats and barley, on the colonic gut microbiota, gut health and on cardiovascular disease. So that's why I'm fueled by Scott's Oats on Instagram because I know all about oats and barley. I wondered that. Why I've got that I wondered that, man. I was going to ask you what was yeah. the premise behind the name, but that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I'm Scott Soaps daft, I guess. I always joke that I'm the guy on the Scott Soaps package with his kilt and his cronies, uh, cronies shotgun. After watching okay, your so car, I, after watching your car, sorry. I thought you'd you'd be a, you know, Mr. Potato or whatnot, because I don't know how many kilos of potato you had during your car, but it was ridiculous. Yeah, Mr. Potato Head, indeed. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that later. After that, I then um, I I worked in. Uh, I worked for a company in Scotland called Fitness Training Scotland. I was delivering their personal training programs. A guy called uh, Paul Garvey, um, he owns that company. He's a, a great guy. He's a good laugh if you ever get a chance to uh, speak to him. So you can, um, I, w- I was delivering those degrees all over, uh, programs, sorry, all over uh, Scotland, traveling around the place. And then I got a job at Sheffield Hallam University as a lecturer in sports nutrition and as a, as a researcher. So that's my, my educational roots. So I did my, HNCs and HNDs, and then I went and did my undergrad sports science, then I did my postgrad masters in human nutrition, and then I did my PhD, which was in um, human nutrition as well. So all in, I think it's about nine years on. It's to say, quite, quite an interesting story. I hope for people who are maybe not as good at school, but they've got the motivation, and you can see that maybe you didn't get the grades, that actually you can go all the way if you want to get the, uh, the doctoral degree if you, if you apply yourself. So quite nice from that perspective, I think. Yeah, 100%. But I think that the, the microbiome stuff is certainly for a different episode because oh, yeah. what I've brought you on today for is to perhaps more to go into detail about the bodybuilding research that you do. So that yeah. kind of that, that leads, leads me right into the first question, which is I know... Oh, I should... or, or do you want to give a little <laughs> I, bit of background? I just realised as well, I never told you anything about my bodybuilding. I just told you all about my, my education. I think the last thing I'll say on that is I've got quite a diverse background in lots of different areas, which I think helps me look at things with uh, lots of different hats on, um, which which is good for problem solving, I, I think, uh, coming to uh, to solutions. So on the, the bodybuilding, briefly, as you said, I recently I did... Um, the biggest bodybuilding federation in the world. They're in 36 or 37 countries. The world finals was in New York City. 360 competitors, a huge show, and it's uh, the best of the best guys competing that that class. Um, I worked it out earlier on. I did my first show in 2006, and my last show was just there, was just there just now. And I've done 27 bodybuilding contests since that time. 
Um, and to a brief summary, I've won eight Scottish titles in various different guises, so class wins, six British titles as a, uh, as a class winner um, as well, competed in, I think it's six or seven now, international competitions, so those are world, world final levels um, or where there's international competitors all over the world. And as a pro bodybuilder, we're looking at um, six pro shows as well, competing against the, some of the best guys in the world as well. So I've been doing this for a, for a long time, and I absolutely, absolutely love it. And I guess that recent competition, the WNBF Worlds, was the, uh, has been the, um, the, the crowning achievement so far in my um, bodybuilding career. And then just as a side, I've also done powerlifting and uh, strongman for my, my troubles, but we can talk about that another day. So, yeah, sorry, there's um, there's a, the brief synopsis on the, the bodybuilding. So I've been doing it well. So n- not only is Andrew uh, a very smart dude, he's also pretty, well, da- pretty damn jacked and has be- be- been around for a long time in the bodybuilding scene. And I'm sure you've seen some federations be at their pinnacle and then now they're perhaps not as, yeah. big, not as big and then other feds come through the ranks as such um, I mean a fantastic achievement from what you just said in regards to everything over the years and I'm sure that over, over the next few years with Steph by your side you guys will go on and, and blitz everything that there is and win everything that there is to win um, along with your clients as well but I wanted to just pick your brain now about all the research you've done in regards to bodybuilding because sure. there's some amazing points that you you told me on the phone um, off podcast Yeah. so for the listeners, can you just give them an idea of your research that is directly related to bodybuilding, um, where you sort of specifically looked at what you said was successful versus unsuccessful bodybuilders in those sort of natural federations? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I think I mentioned this to you. My bodybuilding research kind of falls into uh, to three strands, and we'll get on to that paper that you were talking about there. But um, because I'm a bodybuilder, I'm interested in, I mean – Bodybuilding supplements and how they work, do they work? So that's one area that I research in. So I've looked into fish oil, I've looked into citrulline malate more recently, cherries, uh, caffeine and how it affects performance. The psychological and the physiological effects of, uh, of competition dieting. So what happens when you get super, super lean, both to the body, but also to the, um, to the mind, uh, more on a wider scope, are there consequences of dieting for body dysmorphia, um, eating attitudes, or is it personality? And then the other strand that we're talking about are competition-style strategies. So what are the best strategies for getting yourself in shape for competition? Can we extrapolate those strategies, I guess, to to other populations, like populations that maybe have muscular dystrophy or um, cancer cachexia, um, like this, or just even to to other sports or, or general health and well-being? So we're talking about, okay, well, what is the best way to potentially diet for competition and what's potentially the best way to, to train for competition. So the um, the approach that we, we took for that um, to start with was to start doing what we call cross-sectional studies. So we, we went out and we asked a whole bunch of bodybuilders who said, well, how do you prepare for uh, for, for competition? Are you still with me, Vaughn? Does that oh, all yeah. make sense? Yeah, dude, absolutely. I'm just nodding along because right. I've heard this all. Sure. I just can't wait for the listeners to hear it. Yeah. Okay, so what we did was, it's, it's important that we study natural bodybuilders because obviously if we, we don't study a, a non-natural community, there, there are more variables which can 
have an effect on someone's success or, or failure quite quite obviously. So natural bodybuilders are a good population to, to study for this because they're only looking at really diet manipulations uh, and, uh, and training manipulation as well as rest. I mean, there's still lots of other variables. I mean, we can't ignore those things, but these are the, the main ones. So what we did was um, to get 50 bodybuilders uh, in this particular study you're, you're talking about and we, uh, we grouped them. We got them from the British final. So these are people that have come through qualifying uh, divisions. They've made it all the way to the, the British final. So they're the best of the best. And then we've said, okay, well, let's group these competitors. And we'll say the ones that are successful and they're placing at the competitions. So if you make a top five, you get a trophy. Then we'll say you're a successful bodybuilder. If we don't get a trophy and you've made it to the finals, then unfortunately we group you as being a less successful bodybuilder. So that's success versus non-success. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. I think there'll be a, that, there'll be a lot of people listening that, that'll strike a bit of controversy because what they'll deem successful. But I think in regards to the study, that's a great way to group it and how to categorize them. So yeah, oh, yeah. that's class. 100%, yeah, 100%. Because, I mean, we talked about it. There, there's a distinction between having a successful diet and, uh, and then a, a successful placing. And just because you didn't place doesn't mean that the diet wasn't necessarily successful but i guess if we're trying to um trying to separate it in terms of well who are the actual best yeah. then we want to sort of maybe try and separate it um separate separate it like that um so that, that that's what we did now we we've interviewed these people and we've we've asked them up every question i hope <laughs> but i mean there's there's always things that come up that we um that we thought might contribute towards um uh, well, a bodybuilding contest preparation. So we asked them, well, what's your starting weight? What was your end weight? Uh, what's your body fat percentage? Uh, do you smoke? Do you not smoke? Do you use artificial sweeteners? How many teas and coffees, green teas, etc., do you have per day? Um, do you have a coach? Do you not have a coach? Are you a intermittent fasting dieter? Are you a keto dieter? Are you a clean dieter? Are you a Ibit fits your macros dieter? How much cardio do you do? Um, and then we, we also asked them importantly about your supplement plans and then your peaking plans and then your, your dietary plans at different stages so at the start, the middle and the, the end of the process and all in it works out at what we call uh, a 40 item questionnaire so there's 40 different questions that you can do alongside a, a food diet now there are always inherent limitations with any sort of dietary analysis but you know bodybuilders yeah. I know bodybuilders they're weird and, <laughs> and, and they follow dietary programs almost to the absolute letter. Yeah? So if they yeah. tell you they're doing something, then you know that they're absolutely doing it because they'll weigh absolutely, absolutely everything. They're, they're meticulous, um, meticulous. And, then you, and you know as well, it's almost like a badge of honor to be hardcore, <laughs> to suffer, and to, yeah, and yeah, to yeah. do the, the diet to a T, even if it's ridiculous, like the one guy I heard that was actually eating dry rice because he coached put dry weight and he didn't realise oh, he had to cook it. Oh, fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, with, with it, you know, you've obviously interviewed all these guy, guys and, and ladies yeah, and sure. you've asked them a lot. Now, briefly, what did you find? With everything oh, yeah. you just said there, what, what was the results that you sort of came to? Like, bullet point, bullet point. We saw these trends amongst the successful yeah. ones versus the not successful ones. Could you give us a rough idea? Yeah, sure. So there, there's some things which are um, which jump out immediately, which you can might see might contribute to uh, success or or lack of success. Um, so 
successful bodybuilders they diet for longer right so when they approach a competition and a successful bodybuilder might be doing say a 26 this is the general trend you do a long diet uh, compared to say doing an 18 to a 20 week diet so just having that little bit extra time on the diet seems to make a difference they tend to have trained for longer so your average bodybuilder at that level will have done about 12 to, to 13 years of resistance training in the gym and, uh, and bodybuilding training so it just takes time to accrue the muscle and they'll generally speaking have around about three to four years of competition experience at the same time. So being on stage season after season compared to someone that's maybe only done seven or eight years in the gym and has only got, say, one year of um, competition uh, season training behind them. And that matters. I mean, doing the doing the sport of bodybuilding, spending the time in the gym makes a difference, obviously, to accrue the tissue. But obviously, being able to spend the time on stage and get that experience makes a difference as well because, obviously, it's just presenting yourself you know how important it obviously is to uh, to be able to pose properly and present yourself you know how stressful the competition diet is and every time you do it you learn things and you get better at losing body fat or better at dealing with stress and managing things and dieting through these sort of tough things so so they make a difference i should say we had, we we look at men and women in this study guys generally have been training longer than women before they get to the stage and they've got more years behind them so it's, it's almost about half. So a successful female competitor might be doing, say, six or seven years of training compared to the less successful ones, which are three or four years of um, of training. So the, what, the take-home point from this is, if you want to be good at this, you have to put in the, the time. And we always talk about in sports psychology, becoming an expert or uh, a world-class takes 10,000 hours of practice. Yeah. And you can just see how that, that translates into this. So key things from the start. They diet longer as well. They lose around about 12 to 14% of their body weight. That's the average. So from that, what you can say is, well, you maybe in the off-season, we should be looking not to go much more than that in terms of getting ready because then you're giving yourself work to do. And if you're giving yourself more work to do, it's a harder diet and you might potentially lose muscle tissue. And that's the big thing about all this stuff is that if we diet very slowly and we lose a very small amount of weight per week, so around about 0.5% of our body weight per week, then this seems to be better for maintaining body mass in terms of lean tissue and burning fat mass compared to if we lose weight much, much quicker. And there's nice examples in this that we can draw on in the literature. So we compare bodybuilding case studies, then we can see bodybuilders that get ready in about 14 weeks and lose weight rapidly, lose a large amount of muscle mass. And there's a famous paper by Robinson now or infamous, I should say, where the competitor lost 40% of the, the weight that they lost was lean mass. So, I mean, what we can say from that is that was not a particularly good uh, example of how to diet for a, for a competition. So, the slow weight loss really seems to, to make a difference. Now, the other sort of things that we take from this are that energy intake seems to matter. So, people that diet with more calories tend to be more successful than the people that diet with less calories. So, I mean, you need to lose weight, but it's how low do you need to take the calories in terms of before there's a, a negative consequence for your um, for your muscle mass. Now, the fact that you've got your successful competitors dieting for a longer period of time 
maybe allows them to maintain their calorie intake at a higher level for a longer period of time as well. So that coincides with that. Everybody knows that they need to have protein in the diet. So that's something which is quite interesting. So you, you ask people how much protein they eat, and they're all eating like, say, 2.3 to 2.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, and some are eating about 3 grams per kilogram of body weight. So they're, they're eating tons of protein. Everyone seems to, to get that. Um, but the, the big divide is uh, an energy intake, and that energy coming from carbohydrates. So we can actually separate successful people, believe it or not, in terms of where they place and where they don't place based on their carb intake, which is crazy, I think. Uh, uh, you can do that, and uh, we, we, we followed it up. It, so, to- it totally is, but can I pick your brain right there and would say... Yeah, go for it. Would you, sure. th- would you think it's because the successful ones will more likely have more tissue that their capacity to handle carbohydrates or food is, is higher? So then thus, if they've got more tissue than the non-successful ones, then that could be the common trend? Yeah, it, it could be because your glycogen storage capacity is greater if you've got more muscle mass um, at the same sort of time. We were sort of arguing, though, that the fact that they had a higher energy intake allowed them to maintain that muscle mass and ergo probably maintain that higher carbohydrate intake. And that our thing mm-hmm. was, okay, well, if you're getting ready for competition, if you've got a higher carbohydrate intake, then allows Yeah, because... Carbohydrate is your main energy source like for the sort of exercise we do. So glycolysis, we break down glucose, and then we, uh, we produce lactic acid off the back of it. Everyone gets a pump. That's, that's how bodybuilders, bodybuilders train. So there's a high yield for, um, for carbohydrate in terms of what you require for energy. And if you take the carbohydrate out of the diet, then you can't train as efficiently. So we see this when um, people go on keto. So they get something called keto flu. So if you've ever tried to do any anaerobic exercise, you, yeah, I can see your I face. No way, you just, no way I'm, doing, I'm doing keto. <laughs> yeah, and if anyone ever does like a, um, a carb deplete, you'll know those days are, are absolutely brutal where you've got no carbs in the diet. Now, there is an adaptation that takes place with, uh, with keto, and it might take a couple of weeks. And I know your keto diet is there. I'll be thinking, oh, guys, stop slamming on keto. <laughs> but... Uh, but just from a bodybuilding perspective, um, your main energy source you're utilizing for this type of exercise is, is carbohydrate. Now, if you're not using carbohydrate, then what are you using? You're using ketones, and you're doing a process called gluconeogenesis, which is the breakdown of non-carbohydrate sources for energy. And one of the energy sources that you'll use for that is amino acids, and that'll be from either the diet or from muscle tissue. So you're potentially wasting muscle tissue. So higher carbohydrates mean you can train harder, which spare muscle, you can have more satiety in your diet because if you've got more carbohydrates, then typically you're eating foods which are higher in dietary fiber as well at the uh, at the same time. Yeah, so you've got a satiating effect and you've got maybe better adherence as well to that. So you're less likely to to go off plan. But yeah, absolutely, I I take your point about more muscle mass. I think when we look back though at the um, the body weights of the competitors and and the BMI for example, which is their body mass scaled for height, then we see that actually there isn't much difference of any statistical difference between those two groups. So I don't think it's necessarily down to just that, but that can be a contributing factor. Yeah, yeah. So, totally. yeah, good question, Bob. Now, what, what I wanted to pick your brain about as well, I know you're you're going off on one, but I just want to in, you know, oh, just, yeah, go just, for just it. pick, was that you mentioned about that the, those competitors, the su- successful ones, will perhaps have more carbohydrate from, as you said. Yeah. Uh, you could say starchy carbs. However, I bet you there's someone listening that's like, 
oh well I managed to fit a Galaxy Caramel in my macros in my prep and and whatever but yeah. I, I, I guess what um rather than just a satiety point you know you've pretty much answered what I was going to ask you which is why is it better to eat you know from cleaner sources and you were just like satiety in regards to you know the main carbohydrate being your being your yeah. fuel but I just wanted to interrupt and just say listen to Andrew and when it comes to eating more wholesome you know carbohydrate sources during a diet because right now I feel that especially maybe not recently but within the, in the past couple of years the whole if it fit your macros which by the way I totally agree with for with some people it, but it's becoming too you could say um too prominent would you agree um I, I suppose there are degrees isn't there and the, the, there's there's context here if you're taking a lifestyle client someone that's just trying to lose a little bit of body fat and get themselves in shape and we've got lots of clients like this at, at pro prep coaching that that we help out then having a, a less stringent diet whereby someone can chop and change things around um to to fit their macros if, if you like i mean i don't well this is a whole episode then um then that's that's not probably so much of an issue um if you've got someone that's comp- getting ready for a competition, it's a slightly different scenario. And in that scenario, we're talking about calorific efficiency. So foods like your Galaxy Caramel that you mentioned, and I've got, I had one competitor, by the way, that used to get, they got all their carbs in, the, in this particular study from just eating lemon meringues. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, brilliant. I'd love to be sent I know, it's good. It's good that there, there's lots of little perils in this. I'll tell you another one, actually, just quickly before we move on. Um, a lot of people like to use artificial sweeteners just for that sweetness effect. And this could be an argument, actually, for a picture magnet. I had one guy that wrote that he was, um, he was just eating spoonfuls of stevia a day. Oh, wow. Yeah, but before he um, before he realized it was affecting the way that he looked. And I would say, actually, it's, it's quite worrying because that's probably symptoms of, of disordered eating, really, there. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, you're... We need to talk in terms of calorific efficiency. If you've only got 2,000 calories for your diet uh, and you're absolutely starving, then you need to get the, the most bang for your buck in terms of volume. So if you can imagine 100 grams of pasta versus your 100 grams of, of Mars bar, and let's just, I know the example is kind of not going to add up if, we, if you actually look the calories up. And, and each are like 400 calories. You've got a Mars bar, which might be, I don't know, a 15 centimeter ruler size or a 10 centimeter ruler size, and then you've got a pasta meal which might take up a whole plate, and which one's going to keep you fuller for longer, which one's going to have more actual um, satiating nutrients in it, what's going to have more mineral-dense qualities in terms of the, the vitamins and, and minerals in there, and which one's going to be less severe in terms of your effects on your, your cravings in terms of the insulin response, ghrelin response, and leptin response you're going to get thereafter. So things like that actually matter when you're starving. Um, now, we did ask people which strategies they utilize. So we asked them, okay, well, are you a high-carb diet or low-carb diet? Or um, are you a, if it fits your macros diet? Are you a keto diet? And what we see predominantly was that people that follow clean eating, dieting, are more successful than people that follow these if it fits your macros dieting. So more people place if you're a clean eater versus if you're a non-clean eater for all those sort of reasons we, we asked. Um, the other thing, though, is that if we ask people if you're a high-carb diet or low-carb diet, and then we go and analyze the, the diet, 
what we find is that people are saying like they're high carb dieters or high fat dieters, etc. And then we analyze the diet and there's a complete disconnect between what they're saying and actually what the diet looks like. Yeah. So it might be just definitions which or people just have not got any concept of what actually constitutes a, a high carb or a low carb. So, oh yeah, well, one more thing, because I, I know I'm, I'm bouncing around all over the place here, this is just how my brain works. But it, it's interesting, you're talking about the Galaxy Caramel and, and incorporating these things into your diet um, from here. The public health advice, by the way, has actually changed, and this is why I've not used this term, everything in moderation. We no longer actually preach that anymore. So if you look at your Eat Well guidelines for the United Kingdom, and even if you look at the comparisons for over in the States, the Harvard Eat Well play, you'll notice there's not any confectioner items on there. There's not any um, sweets or anything like that. They're all not on the plate anymore because for the last 30 years, 40 years, we've preached moderation and it's been a dramatic <laughs> failure if you look at the rates of obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. So we're, we're now actually saying um, don't, don't have that food because <laughs> you can't be trusted. Yeah. No, you can't I mean, be trusted. So mate, that's, that's mate, an interesting caveat. Mate, I don't know if I've asked, answered your question there. No, no, um, you, you totally have. I was just allowing you to go off on, on the sure. tangents because, mate, this is why we got you on to pick your brain because you are the, the brains behind the bodybuilding research, and it's that's why we've got you're actually the. I had a, the episode hasn't dropped yet. AJ Morris was on last week, so. Um, sure. You guys are the first sort of like you know natural guests we could say, and you one week after the other. Um, I know I had Steph, okay. I had Steph on as well, but um, it's, uh, it's it was great to sort of have you both in week after week. But moving on, um, there was part of what we spoke about on the phone, and you actually talked a little bit about this. I think you did a blog or an article. I saw this a couple of days ago, and you were speaking about uh, bodybuilding splits in regards to training methodologies. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've got push-pull legs, we've got the classic bro split, we've got upper-lower. Yeah. Now, what you what I saw from that blog was, you know, you said that the classic bodybuilding splits were actually deemed quite successful versus a push-pull, which is could, could, could be a total opposite of what someone is thinking. And I personally, before you said about the research, I was always in my head like, no, push-pull legs or upper-lower will always be favourable. So I guess I wanted to pick your brain and sort of see what you found in that sort of, in, within your research of, of you know, and maybe give the listeners of, well, actually, why is classic bodybuilding splits, you know, how do they work um, and why do they work when perhaps they're being bashed a little bit um, over the past couple of years? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily understand where this um, this bashing of the these sort of splits have um have come from because I guess for, for such a long time the bodybuilding split had perhaps reigned supreme and that this is the the way that you actually people like to, to do this and it comes from Arnold Schwarzenegger's golden era then we got some more research that, that came out um, and the noughties which were saying well you can actually you could do it like this and then you get an effect on protein synthesis like this and then there's periodization became more popular and then um, I guess maybe Lane Norton made power hypertrophy, which was like an upper body sort of style split, really popular. Powerlifting sort of has leaked its way and its methods into into bodybuilding. Again, you could say, because if you look right back, I mean, Frank Colombo was the, the world's strongest bodybuilder at the time and did the strongman. So things go in cycles. But um, if we just look at, 
bodybuilding splits. I mean, these things have persisted for such a long time because they're successful. And they wouldn't persist like many bodybuilding ideas and bodybuilding culture if, if they didn't actually have some merit. So every so often you hear about ridiculous things like people crap loading and just eating pastries and buns and stuff like that. <laughs> and that's... Give me it's that kind diet. Of I, I, I want that diet. <laughs> What was that? I just said, give me that diet. That sounds good. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but yeah, these things don't really persist that well um, because because they're not successful. You, people don't do these sort of things. But obviously, the, the classic bodybuilding split is. But if we look at the, the research, right? So that that first study I was talking about with, with fifty odd folk. I've got another study which has got another fifty in it. So we've got a hundred bodybuilders doing splits. There's some work by a chap called Huxley, um, as well, down in Australia. Um, he's done some work on uh, on bodybuilders as well, and what we see is predominantly bodybuilders use these sort of splits. They use these sort of uh, classic bodybuilding splits where you, you split it up, uh, and there are some some advantages of that. I mean, that allows you to focus in in a session. It allows you to uh, to bring up weaknesses. It allows you to recover and hit another body part a little bit more um, harder in the next session. And I guess what people would say is that there's because of the frequency. Um, of those sort of training sessions, then you're um, you're not it's not going to be as optimal as it possibly can be because you've got to wait a full week again before you're going to stimulate that that area. But it's it's not true because whenever you go and train your your back, for example, you train your arms at the same time. Whenever you train your legs, you're also training your um, your upper body at the same time, and, and so on. So you're you're always getting stimulation, uh, so you're always getting that sort of full body muscle protein synthesis getting on plus the, the hormonal response you're going to get and I really like these classic splits because they allow um, they allow you to really focus on, on weak areas and they're really malleable and, and adaptable by the same token I've done lots of push pull I've done lots of whole body as well for, for strong man and for, for powerlifting and I would definitely say that higher frequency training of compounds 100% is more effective for, uh, for strength based training Absolutely, definitely, one hundred percent. But if we uh, if we take to Philip's recent review, he's came out and he's more or less said that actually, guys, if you look at training as a whole, so long as you're doing at least twelve sets on a body part to fifteen sets on a body part per week, then um, and you're not doing junk volume if you like, as long as you're actually training as hard as you can. So if you're working at RPE of around about nine. To, uh, to eight all of the time, and that that'll be whether it's seventy uh, percent um, or an eight percent of your um, your one rep max. As long as you're working in the hypertrophy zones of say six to, to twelve repetitions, and most six is the lower end and twelve is the upper end, and there, there's not much difference in terms of periodizing approaches. As long as you're doing these things, then the, the difference between programs is is maybe potentially negligible. Now that works based on maybe not specifically bodybuilding population so there's there's always caveats regarding specifically my research what we see is that more successful competitors typically follow the the classic uh, the classic bro split and um, the it's about 70 to 30 percent in terms of that and the successful class to um upper body lower body sort of power hypertrophy splits but in the less successful camp, that's where you get all the people that are doing, say, push-pull legs. 
So there's more people doing push pull legs and that sort of um, that camp as well. Females seem to train differently from males. It would seem guys seem to be more in favour of the sort of classic split. It would seem, and the females seem to be more in favour of doing the sort of um, upper lower sort of splits. It would seem maybe because it gives them more focus on the, the lower body, perhaps. But yeah, just in terms of looking at the research, it seems like there is um, there's a slight divide in terms of what is popular and then what the popular plans in terms of which ones are maybe successful. Now, the other way you could look at it is because it's the most popular plan, there's probably more people being less successful as well at the same time with yeah. that split. Yeah. So, I suppose, yeah. Um, the, the big thing I would maybe just take away from this, this whole thing, though, just to summarise, is there's a lot of different ways you can do it. There's definitely a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, if you can justify your approach, then um, by all means do that. But I would not necessarily say that one is necessarily better than the other one and you should do which works best for your lifestyle and which you enjoy the most in all different ways so does, does that help you does that yeah. answer your question i was going to interrupt you at one point but oh go for it yeah you, you said rpe eight to nine and some yeah. people some people that'll kind of go I, I don't know what rp is and i was just going to say oh, yeah, sorry. Rate, rate of perceived exertion but what you said you were like sure you were like, as long as those sets are hard, and I was going to say, what Andrew's trying to say, as long as you give it the beans on every single yes. set, you, 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 you'll be absolutely fine. It doesn't necessarily matter when you train them. So I, just, I was just, shameful little plug I was going to add in there. But Yeah, oh no, dude, give, give it the beans for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's an important point, right? Because we've got studies whereby if you take someone, right, and you get them to work at 30% of their one rep max, and you get me to do 15 reps, versus someone that works at, say, 80% of their one rep max, and they do, say, eight reps, and then you measure things like muscle protein synthesis, and you see that actually one is not necessarily better than the other one, so long as you absolutely give it your hardest and give it your all in both those sort of situations. And then if you underexert effort in either situation, then you typically find that the... Um, the one that you're underexerting effort and gets less response. Now, there's more to just training the muscle protein synthesis. I always have to sort of state that there's there's lots of things going on, but it's just really important that you, you work hard in those um, in those rep ranges. And I think it's you also said the word you're not doing junk volume, and we see this yeah. like so much in gyms across the country. Whether it's like oh, sure. guys just I'm just gonna go do ten sets of curls and they just picked up the sixes and they're just blasting them out or they're doing like, you know, girls are just doing kickbacks on the cables for days and you're just like yeah. it's not yeah. doing do, not doing anything. So it was just good to hear that um, you know, from your research but also from your experience that you just have to fucking train hard and you don't necessarily need to do more. Yeah. And that that like good quality um you could say smaller volume is better than a lot of just fucking junk volume. But what I wanted to just... No, you're, you're right. What you're, want, you're totally right. What I wanted to just transition on um, was you mentioned this uh, sort of dividing training between the males and the females, and it makes sense of why. But on the phone, we, we sort of talked about uh, those successful uh, athletes having coaches and ones yeah, not having sure. coaches. And you found some, uh, some pretty cool... Uh, numbers um, I just want you to share them with the listeners on what you found in regards to um, who had a coach and perhaps who didn't yeah definitely and full disclosure you're a coach and I'm a coach we, we should say on on this um, 
so what we tend to find is with the guys the successful ones it's about 50-50 so half of them have got a coach half of them don't have a coach yeah Yeah. so I mean but those successful guys are much more experienced yeah Yeah. so maybe half of them have, they've worked out maybe how to to um, to diet successfully for, for competitions and get themselves in shape or maybe maybe it's that they've half of them have become successful because they finally got with a coach to, to change their, their ideas on it. So the guys, it's about 50-50 in terms of using using coaches. In the females, I think it was about 100% of the successful female competitors were using a coach, and then it was about, say, 70% of the less successful ones were, uh, were not using a coach. Now, you're a guy, I'm a guy, we're really stubborn, yeah? <laughs> we've got, we've got yeah, our ideas, my we've got agree. our beliefs, and you know what? Fuck you, man, this is the way I'm doing it, right? Um, <laughs> so 100% true, man. <laughs> like, you know it's like. But, so, but females are definitely, and this is a feeling with us guys, more inclined to listen and seek out advice, I think, than, than guys. I mean, I've heard people, researchers, talk about this in, in their past. It's the same when they go into business, that they're more inclined to look for mentors and things like that to set them up for success. Because let's be fair, Vaughn, guys are stupid. We're stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would have to, yeah, so, I'd have to so, agree. So the... Um, the girls are the girls are relying on coaches much more than than the guys, right? And I wonder that because it's become more successful in recent years, um, like push pull, uh, upper lower, and things like that, that that might be a factor which is influencing the uh, um, between the, the guys and the girls. That that might be one of the things. So you've got like. Well, specialist coaches saying, "Okay, I can change the shape of your lower half by doing particular training sessions um, from here." The other thing that I thought was interesting, though, was and it, it's take it back to um, the diet um, dietary approaches. You've got clients saying that they're following this type of diet, and then they are. We're analysing their diets, and we're finding out that they're following actually a different type of diet. And I wonder if there's a disconnect between. The coach telling the athlete, okay, you're, you're dieting on high carbs. And the, the, the athlete not understanding what actually that means in terms of, well, you're, you should be consuming, say, 40, 50% of your diet from carbohydrate or it should be the largest portion. Or if it's the coach doesn't understand what's, uh, what's going on there. And, uh, and Noura Alwan, who's um, is a good bodybuilding researcher doing at Chichester, who's done some nice stuff, has actually looked into this and and we see that like less than 10% of actual coaches have got any sort of formal nutritional qualification so it could easily be that other sort of scenario whereby maybe it's the coach doesn't quite know what constitutes that and then they're leading the athlete that doesn't quite know that but it doesn't matter anyway because a large proportion of them looked in great shape and uh, and were successful anyway so the, the, the method definitely worked even if they, they didn't understand necessarily the, the classification um, from the scientific perspective yeah yeah 100 100% now just like it was a very truthful point about how us guys can be stubborn versus you know oh, like, sure. if, if we're ill we're, we're not going to the doctor but like females no. straight away will go to the doctor so I, I knew that it was probably perhaps obvious but I just wanted to, you to elaborate on that point because it is kind of awesome now not only did you study that's the, a good way to 
look at it actually that's yeah. a really nice way yeah now not only did you study um we'll say amateur shows but you actually told me on the phone about you have studies on professional bodybuilders in the natural division yeah. and, and what i just sort of wondered uh, to pick your brain of the research that you found from the successful amateur bodies did you see any sort of crossovers in perhaps what what the amateur, what the pros were doing were, were they doing anything different than what the successful amateurs doing or was there was there any discrepancies yeah great question there Bob. great question there so the hypothesis was right before we um went on to the professional training um category so looking at guys that were the, the best in the world essentially we had um i mean what, what would it be 10 professional males versus um, 40 odd less well amateur bodybuilders and then what what we're looking at is uh guys that are competing in world finals consistently placing in top threes uh we had some pro overall world champions and class winners so these were top pros that we're looking at and the hypothesis was well if the high level amateurs are doing this the successful ones and the high level amateurs eventually become pros then maybe what the pros are doing is similar to what the uh, the high level amateurs are doing so that was a hypothesis going in and uh, yeah that's exactly what we're finding and actually the data is even stronger on this one so we did a statistical analysis well and you'll remember doing stats looking for the so we see that pro bodybuilders diet for even longer yep so they're doing diets which are 28 32 weeks they're losing weight even slower so we're talking like less than half a percentage per week they've got more training experience they've got more competition experience they're losing around about say 12 to 14 percent body weight to get in shape for competitions as well the diet by the way i should mention this if you take that eat well plate and you look at it and you say okay well 30 percent to 40 percent from vegetables 30 40 percent from starchy carbohydrates um, and whole grains we've got maybe about a fifth and i'm going to get my percentages here wrong when i try to put this thing or fractions a fifth is to um, a quarter is going to be from dairies and, and good quality proteins and then we've got oils uh, oils in here as well that's kind of typically what a, a bodybuilding diet actually looks like believe it or not you just take that eat well plate that's what people are actually eating but just in larger quantities with with a few bit, little bits on the side. But yeah, the, the, the pros are their diet on large amounts of protein, just like the amateurs. So 2.3 up to 3 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein. And then carbohydrates, you're talking about 5 grams per kilogram of body weight. So that's like, say, about 450 upwards uh, grams of carbohydrate that people are dieting on all the way into uh, the competition. All the bodybuilders in these studies that are successful and the pros, they seem to be low-fat dieters, which is which is quite interesting. So you're only talking around about, say, 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight, which is around about 50, uh, in some cases, 45 grams to about 70 grams of fat per day. So they're not high-fat dieters, which, which is interesting. Does that all make sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that if we're speaking about, like, females, like, we say, bikini girls... Yep we would know that like although their calories even though they're a pro might be slightly higher they're probably not going to be high enough that you know the reason fats that are going to stay low is just because they're they're super high in calories right um but yeah i think that again you sort of opened my mind uh i came and saw yourself and steph 
I think you were there on my second uh, posing lesson. And uh, first time I met you, and I was just like, oh, so so when's your show? And you were like, oh, September. And I was like, what are you dieting now for? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, I did an eight-week or a ten-week diet alone this year. Um, but of course, like, I'm assisting, it's different. But I, I think certainly just, sure. just hearing you talk about that research should be a hit-home point for any natural bodybuilder competitor out there that is thinking, oh, I'm going to do this in 14 weeks. Well, actually... The successful ones, if we're, we're deeming that as the top five, they're, they're doing it in 20 weeks, 22. And in your case, what felt like yeah. a year, right? Because every time I'd come for a posing session, yeah, you were still dying. So I'm like, have you not done your show yet? Like, when is it? You're like, oh, it's 10 weeks away. And I'm just like, I'm looking at you in the mirror because Andrew and Steph are my posing coaches today that don't know. And you're doing your most muscular and your, your, front yeah. double, your front double. And I'm like, how much left do you got come off? Like, it, it, it was... It, you know, you looked the part that, that long out, but what you just explained, it, it's an extreme sport, man. It connects all the X's and Y's and the dots, which is yeah. which is great. Now, I'm aware of time, and, and this next one was certainly one that I wanted to um, pick your brain That's about because sure. we see so many differences across competitors. Now, if we talk about peaking protocols, there are certain traits that are common. Oh yeah, sure. Among peak weeks, and and for that, we know that people might perhaps manipulate water, sodium. Carb loading, and I kind sure, of, kind sure. of just thought, right, was there anything you found within your research that was what were the successful people doing, and if if they were, could you sort of share with the listeners the the, the common successful traits that people perhaps might do that someone could perhaps implement themselves? Okay, so so this is an our research study. I should mention those that those are bits of research. Those are two separate papers. And if anyone wants to find them, if you go to the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And just type in Chappelle, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L, and bodybuilding, then you'll find those those research papers. And I'm sure Vaughn can, can post them up. This is a separate study that we're looking at now. So as well as what strategies people do to get themselves in shape, we're interested in, okay, well, peak week. And, uh, and you, we alluded to, to this earlier on when we called me Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> <laughs> or I called myself that. So, I mean, peaking for competition. And... I did, I think day one was 1,200 grams of carbs, 800 the second day, and then like four or 500 on the third day. So that was 2,500 grams of carbs. That was my peak um, that, I, that I went with. Now, that was evidence-based. That was based on strategies which, uh, which other bodybuilders utilize, but also what we know about um, carbohydrate uh, loading protocols. Now, for those that don't know, uh, when it comes to bodybuilding, what we're trying to do is we're trying to display the most muscular physique we possibly can. So large, voluminous muscle. We want to have a tight waist, so we're, we're not got any bloating in the midsection. We want to look very dry, so the muscles have got like a hard look, and that means losing all the, the subcutaneous water. And then you want to be conditioned as well, so you can see all the all the detail. And bodybuilders will peak for competition in order to um, to try and achieve this look so in the final week they'll typically manipulate the things that you mentioned so sodium water carbohydrates but also protein fats uh, some will consume alcohol as well at the, the same time and they'll do that as part of their uh, their peak week and uh, what we did was we went out and had a look at what um i think this is 80 bodybuilders and again we interviewed them we say okay well what do you do for this this peak week and then we compared it alongside what we uh classical carbohydrate loading and how that that works so what people typically do is there'll be a, a three-day depletion phase 
And that's where you obviously you consume very low carbohydrates, um, probably around about, say, 80, 60, 40 grams, say, for those the, the, the first three days. You'll have a high-protein diet, and then people will either increase their fats to compensate for the low carbohydrates, but you're trying to deplete your muscles of um, of glycogen. So they'll do high-intensity workouts, and uh, they might do high-intensity aerobics at the same time to, to deplete the muscles. Now, some people... I said three days. Some people do this phase for, say, five days. Some people do it for two days. It's, there's a bit of variability uh, in there with, within this one. After that comes the um, the carbohydrate loading protocol. And again, this, this varies as well. Some people do it for four days. Some do it for five. Some do it for two. Most common is the people will do it for front loading. And some people will do what they call backloading. So you put all the carbs in either initially with a front load. So the largest amount in a stepwise pattern would be, like I said, 1,200, 800, and then uh, four or 500. Or you do it the other way around. Are you still with me so far? Does that yeah, make yeah. sense? Um, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I've got clients yeah. that we do all of that. So it's uh, it's good Good to hear. Good, good. So that's that's your sort of uh, your approach now. Some the, the amount of carbohydrates that people consume during this phase varies. Um, typical classic carbohydrate loading, we're looking at between around about 8 grams to around about 12 grams per kilogram of body weight. So you can scale it. So for a 100 kilogram individual, then that's going to be 1,200 grams of carbs or, say, 800 grams of carbs on that, that first day. And it's to do with this concept that we call glycogen supercompensation. So if you deplete your muscle of glycogen, then your glycogen storage enzymes become super sensitive. Your carbohydrate receptors on the muscles also become super receptive so when you throw all the carbohydrate back in there there's a compensatory effect so you get more carbohydrate being stored in the muscle than you otherwise would be and you get about 20 30 percent more carbohydrate in there than um, than a normal sort of condition now carbohydrate is stored with water so you drink a lot of water at the same time to ensure that you facilitate the storage of the, the carbohydrate and some people and people do all sorts of weird things with it so some people will drink, say, 12 litres a day for, like, say, two weeks before contest. Jesus. And that's to me. Yeah, I know. Like, you'd be on the toilet all the time. And, I mean, there are issues with this because you could end up with things like um, hyponatremia. And that's the thing that where you get overly diluted salts that people hear about dying doing marathons from because they're just drinking too much. Yeah. You get headaches and you get lethargic and you get pins and needles in your hands because you're just losing all the salt out of yourself. You need salts conductor but yeah people will drink huge amounts of water 9 12 liters um during this phase and then the sodium when we look at the populations we see that sodium seems to be one of the biggest confusing factors so some people will load it initially and then some people will deplete it initially and then load it on contest day on reflection and, and one of the reviewers made a great point on this one um i spoke to him after uh, eric helms he was saying that this this is a good point that carbohydrate loading through the intestine you've got the sodium glucose transporter which allows you to take up more glucose so you should probably keep the sodium in initially when you're doing that carbohydrate loading phase and it makes perfect sense to me yep. to, to absolutely do that and then on the day of the contest maybe a little bit of sodium as well at the same time just to ensure that you don't cramp because people typically deplete water as well at the uh, the same sort of time so that's what people do. Um, carbohydrate sources and loading, we're talking initially people will be using high glycine carbs, 
So we're talking rice cakes, fruit, white potatoes, and then as we move further along, you're using lower glycemic carbs as the, the glycogen storage capacity starts to decrease over time. Now, the front-loading method makes the most sense to me because if anything goes wrong with yeah. your plan, you've got more days to play about with. You don't want to chuck a 1,200 grams of carbs in the night before a contest because you don't know how you could look the next day. But if you do it on the Wednesday, then there's still scope to, uh, to play about with. So you have to be practical and you have to be pragmatic. And I know that's something that we talked about on the phone one was um, this all this sort of stuff that I talk about can, is abstract thinking a lot of the time totally. and it's interesting but you actually have to see well how can we actually practically implement these things into the diet and does it make sense so there, there's a nice example of yeah you, you probably want to front load at the uh, the same sort of time and then uh, a, a few other sort of nice little interesting things that people do is alcohol so some people will um, will drink a, a bottle <laughs> A bottle of white wine the night before. Um, I wouldn't recommend drinking a bottle or a bottle on the day. But you know, maybe a glass of white wine if you can't sleep or uh, on the day. The idea is that it'll dry you out as a diuretic and help you cause polyuria, so you'll you'll urinate and you'll be even drier. Maybe people do it for Dutch courage and you take the edge off things. And do you know what? Yeah. Before I was always like really, really against it, and now I've come to think like, well, see, for a novice competitor, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but. Be really stressful. You forget, like I've done, like twenty-seven on bodybuilding contests, but getting up there in your pants in front of a whole audience, like yeah, we you can see why it could stress some people out, and you do see it all the time. You've seen me pose in the studio. I don't lack confidence, but I work with lots of people, and I can see that people need brought out their shells, and that can make it difficult. So, but that's a nice summary, I think, of different sort of strategies and things that do they do in terms of getting ready for uh, for competitions uh, the peak week wise yeah and I, fry ups yeah fry I, ups people do these yeah so they eat bacon eggs lauren sausage and all that these people aren't successful <laughs> <laughs> so i'm saying they're, they don't typically do as well i'm not going to say they're not successful but they don't typically do as well yeah brilliant but it's it's great to hear that i mean like some of the things you talk about i'll do but i'll also do stuff totally different and it, it will work and, mm-hmm. and i guess that all comes to the sort of concluding question which is you know the limiting factors you found within your studies what would you perhaps say would be um, there's maybe many right but perhaps be oh, the, yeah, sure. the, the, the biggest ones because I, I, I work with um, a lot of natural female but like bikini girls or photo mm-hmm. shoot um, and then really sure. it kind of goes from that to assisted guys so I've got a, couple, a few natural guys yeah. and, and we do what you said but perhaps we might just do a two day load and I might not manipulate yeah. salt or water. I'll just manipulate it the night before, um, mm-hmm. and they still wake up looking shredded. So there's so many different ways to, to achieve the same effect. But um, having you been the expert in natural bodybuilding, I think that the, your research and, and what everything you've research you, you've found is, takes premise. So, but I just wanted to pick you know to give the listeners so they don't think that oh my god I do this totally different and. And that's maybe wrong. What yeah, what could sure. you say? There's a, a crossover or perhaps a limiting factor in the research that you found, in regards to what you found in regards to real 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 time prep client, you know, coaching. Oh yeah, I mean we, we work with lots of folk at, um, at pro prep as well, and you have to be able to identify. And this is your job as a coach. Their level of nutritional understanding and and are they ready for this? As as a thing like. 
So if we, if I get the, the bodybuilding manual and handbook out that I can write for um, contest preparation evidence based advice, and I say right, okay, first time client getting ready for a contest, and I say you've got to do a thirty two week diet for a show, like you I can see your face already. You're <laughs> yeah. like that. I mean, that's not going to work, right? So um, it it depends. There are you have to. Be aware of the practical limitations of this stuff, and the, you made a brilliant example. Oh, I should mention, by the way, for disclosure, like my first contest, I think was like eight weeks or something like that. Yeah. That's all I could have managed at that time um, for my first time ever. The next one I did was like twelve weeks. The one I did after that was twelve weeks. Then I did sixteen, and then it got longer and longer. Uh, but I got more muscle over the years as well. But there are practical limitations. I mean, people get stressed out. If you, the, the things are too complicated for people and that old saying keep it simple stupid is is a great expression because you can um, you can definitely overcomplicate things and stress people out and people can get too lost we lack data on um, we, we lack having enough data on, on many of these things that we're discussing so we can look at overall trends in terms of this is probably what happens during the contest dieting period, but we've not got the studies whereby we actually take people, put them into two separate groups, and we say, you're going to be a high-carb dieter, you're going to be a low-carb dieter. We follow them for 20 weeks, yeah. no variation in it at all, and then we see at the end of it who's got more muscle mass, who's got the more successful contest placing and, and the best biceps. We, we just don't have that data, and there's real practical limitations we've been able to do that study, because I can't go to you, right, Vaughn, and you're, you're volunteering for this study, you're going to do this diet, and someone else is going to do this diet, and then we're going to put you on for 20 weeks, and we're not going to change it at all, because you're going to be like, well, I want to be on the other diet for a start, because I think that's going to be more successful, <laughs> so you've got your own biases there, yeah. uh, at the same time, but being able to stick it, for it to be, to get the adherence, to not deviate from the diet whatsoever, these, these are the, the problems with doing, um, with bodybuilding research, and, and it's the same with any research. What we end up inevitably doing, we never ever prove anything in science. All we ever do is accumulate more and more evidence, and then over time we kind of say, well, it looks like that probably happens. Yeah. That's probably what's what's going on. So you should always sort of take these things with a pinch of salt. And I mean, you, you made a good point as well here, saying like, people might be doing things differently, you might be doing things differently. There's if you've identified and developed a method and you're implementing that method with people over and over again and it's working, then you're definitely onto something. And that sounds like you're definitely doing something which is evidence-based because you're trying it over and over again. I think people get too caught up on what actually being evidence-based is. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about bro splits, but I mean, if you're doing your bro split with all your clients, and they all come and shredded all win the contest, then you're evidence and that you know what you're talking about with yeah. your, your training of your, your clients. That's a good So that, that was a limiting, a limiting factor. I mean, I, we talked about other stuff. Um, we've probably ran out of time for uh, for mentioning um, other things, but uh, hopefully that's a nice summary of um, things that are limiting. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Now, it has been a pleasure to have you on well, today. You. And uh, I think that a lot of, a lot of listeners have got knowledge a few knowledge bombs from you, but there may be some people out there who they're like, this field Scottish Oats guy, who's that? What does that mean? So for anyone who perhaps doesn't know where they could get in touch with you, can you tell them, 
your Instagram handle, uh, you know, your website, perhaps what day you, yeah. you, you do autographs on and that you can come get your autograph <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and all that jazz. So you just give them a little bit of info, man. Uh, that'll be fab. So I'll be down at Pure Gym for this evening with, uh, and you can get, bring your Sharpies. Um, <laughs> okay. So if you want to find me, um, go on my website, www.proprepcoaching.com so you can um, get in touch with us there you can check out our coaching services that we offer there me and Steph Noble also our posing services which I know you've been down to uh, quite a few times on it's always yep. good fun to uh, to do routines of you you're uh, you're really coming on with them uh, so proprepcoaching.com we've also got the the website uh, sorry the, the Facebook so proprepcoaching the Instagram proprepcoaching and then we're on YouTube as well so we do episodes on there so it's proprepcoaching by Steph Noble and Dr. Andrew Chappelle. My own personal Instagrams and things like that, if you want to look at them, it's fueled by Scott Oats. You'll find me on um, Instagram. You'll also find that I've got a Facebook page, Andrew Chappelle, Bodybuilding and Fitness. On there, I typically post my um, research uh, papers and things like that, and I'll, I'll post whatever is, uh, is of interesting interest for that. The last thing I'll say, can I put a shout out to one of my, uh, my sponsors? Is that all right? Yeah, go for it, man. Okay, so I've recently came on board with, uh, with Chemical Warfare, so be sure to, to check them out. They sponsor all the uh, the NABBA shows. I met those guys at the, the NABBA Universe this year, and they were, um, they were keen to, uh, to work alongside me. So check out their um, their website, and if you want, you can get a 20% discount on all their products. Just use Andrew, and then you get 20% off. So there you go. Fab, man. Now, for anyone listening that's kind of heard that word posing, um I would thoroughly oh, yeah. recommend Steph and Andrew. I send all my clients to these guys. Uh, there's a reason if you watch anyone they work with, uh, their clients on stage or a video from your Instagram, um, you can just tell you guys know what you're talking about. And what I like as well, and I know that my uh, work colleague Ali will back this up, is you don't teach some two people exactly the same. And, and he, no, had, no, no. he had a, a, a posing session with Steph. He's a physique guy, uh, was, and before him, was a physique guy and Ali was sort of watching through the window and, and when Ali went in Steph taught him totally differently than you know what how, how she'd been teaching so I, I think that really stands out and, and there's not enough of that in, in within the industry it's usually just one size fits all approach um, and yourself in regards to, yeah. to classic bodybuilding um, and just giving lo- loads of tips um, help me you, you've helped me finalise the routine for shows next year um, I, don't, I don't you haven't seen the final version because I changed Oh, there'll be another routine, Vaughn. You'll make another one. Well, it's, it's the same one. It's just it's more of like an orchestra version, cello version than what I had before. But um, I see yeah, you changed it. <laughs> I just wanted to to put that in there that I I, I send all, all the girls and guys your way um, and credit where it's due. So anyone listening, um, that you. was Doctor Andrew Chappelle, and I think that wherever you are, wherever you do from us this weekend, give it the beans. <laughs>